Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Wednesday edition of Pro Football Talk Live. Peter King, Mike Florio here with you for the next two hours. Chris Sims, as far as I know, has recovered from his booster reaction. He is on assignment, so Peter is with me today. And Peter, good morning. It is a monumental morning. morning. It is a historic morning. It is a morning that I believe the NFL never dreamed it would be waking up to. The fact that a young coach a young black coach on the right side of 40 willing to take the calculated risk with his future career to call out decades of alleged slash actual systemic racism as it relates to coaches and front office executives. I was stunned when I saw it. 15 hours later, I'm still stunned by it. And we're going to spend a lot of time over the next couple of hours breaking it down and helping people understand what it means and where it goes from here. My my absolute first reaction was, I guess Brian Flores isn't getting any one of these jobs, and he knows it, because clearly, uh, I doubt sincerely that if uh, Nick Casario in Houston had said, hey, uh, Brian, we're going to give you this job, I doubt he would have done this. But, you know, look, I don't know where it's going to land, Mike. None of us know where this is going to land. These are accusations. They are powerful. They are strong. And they are damning accusations that, if proven correct, will have to result, if at least the Miami Dolphins part of it is proven correct, that uh, the owner of the team, Stephen Ross, acted the way he did, the NFL is going to have to strip him of his franchise. Uh, and we're going to spend and, a lot you know, of time focused. On, go ahead. I thought you were done. Yeah, I, I, but but my other my my only other point in this is, Mike. No matter what the truth is right now, I think it took a tremendous amount of courage 
for Brian Flores to do this because he knows that he is either committing career suicide or he's damaging his career to the point that he knew when this was filed that there was a good chance he was never going to coach in the NFL again. And that's the big picture takeaway that, that I have. The Rooney Rule was adopted nearly 20 years ago by the NFL under clear pressure from Cyrus Mary and the late Johnny Cochran when considering the abysmal minority hiring practices of the NFL from its founding 80 years earlier through 2002, this was a no-brainer. And the NFL acted in response to the threat of litigation, credible threat of litigation. That's what got the NFL to do it. We don't know if there was a coach who was ready at the time to trade the balance of his career for the opportunity to be the person who stands up to a league that the history is undeniable. The facts are undeniable. The raw data, the statistics are undeniable. The low number of black and minority coaches over the years, decade upon decade upon decade, that's undeniable. It's been hiding in plain sight and it hasn't gotten much better in the 20 years since the Rooney rule. So Peter, up until yesterday, my position was the NFL will not do anything to fix this core problem without a return of a credible threat of litigation or actual litigation. And the actual litigation is something that I never thought would happen because it was going to take an act that, you know, is it selfless? Is it, is it reckless? It may be both. But... I don't think they thought, and I know I didn't think, that that someone was going to be willing to do this. But Brian Flores is willing to do it. Now, now, now they will mobilize their litigation war machine against Brian Flores. I fear that they'll do that instead of taking a step back, objectively assessing the flaws that are baked into the hiring practices of 32 teams and the league office and fix them. They are going to adopt an aggressive posture, as they always do. You sue a big company, they're going to fight you. They're not going to say, hmm, maybe you got a point there. Maybe, hmm, hmm, maybe you're onto something. They're going to fight, and that's what this is going to be. Early and repeatedly, it's going to be an assault against Brian Flores. He's going to get the Colin Kaepernick treatment from the NFL. It's coming. And it'll be wrong if he never gets an opportunity to get in the NFL. But it's coming. That's the way the playbook reads, not just for the NFL, but for every other big company. Peter. Mike, when the NFL reacted on Tuesday night and said essentially that Brian Flory's claims are without merit, and without merit was in quotes, uh, the first thought that went through my mind was how in the world can you know if the claims are without merit? when he just filed the lawsuit two hours ago or, or when it was made public two hours ago. I'm sure the NFL knew at some point before that. But, you know, so that renders everything the NFL says in the coming days, weeks, and months about this lawsuit. Everything. It puts it, in my mind, in extreme doubt. It puts the words of the NFL statements... Uh, and what the NFL does here, it puts it all in doubt. 
what the NFL should have said is, you know, we're going to have no comment at this time. Uh, we defend all of our uh, results toward, uh, you know, better hiring practices among coaches. But instead of that, instead of that, they dismissed this lawsuit out of hand. When in reality, Mike, you know and I know that if Brian Flores is proven in a court of law to be correct about any of these, it is going to be a bombshell. And certainly if he's, if he's correct about the Stephen Ross part of it, I mean, it's going to result in an absolute bomb uh, um, you know, in the middle of it, thrown in the middle of NFL ownership. The NFL has a very intriguing recent history of reacting initially to litigation. When St. Louis sued over the relocation of the Rams, and that was a lawsuit that eventually resulted in a cash settlement of $790 million, the NFL said there is no legitimate basis for this litigation. While we understand the disappointment of St. Louis fans and community, we work diligently with local and state officials in a process that was honest and fair at all times. When Oakland sued over relocation of the Raiders to Las Vegas, Mark Davis said it was meritless and malicious. That's the first statement right out of the gates. John Gruden's lawsuit. Remember that? That, that, that feels like it was a long time ago after the Brian Flores lawsuit. The NFL said the allegations are entirely meritless and the NFL will vigorously defend. The only time they've had a no comment in response to recent litigation was last week with this San Diego taxpayer lawsuit that, as far as I can tell, every claim made is well beyond the applicable statute of limitations. This one truly is without merit just by virtue of the fact that they waited too long. And in response to that, they said no comment. So maybe when it's truly without merit, they say no comment. And when they're afraid, they say it's without merit. And I'm, be- you know, I'm being facetious, but you-, you saw we had the statement on the screen. Beyond the fact that they claim on the first day that they're aware of it, that it's without merit. How- and you made a great point, and, I- and I've-, I've retweeted it and-, 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 and will run with it. The idea that... You can come to the conclusion that a lawsuit is without merit before you've even done the most cursory internal investigation into the accuracy or lack thereof of the claims that are being made. Look at the rest of this. The NFL and our clubs are deeply committed to ensuring equitable employment practices and continue to make progress. Where's the progress in providing equitable opportunities throughout our organizations? Where's the progress? The numbers speak for themselves. Diversity is core to everything we do. There are a few issues on which our clubs or our internal leadership team spend more time Where, where's where's the where's the proof the proof's in the pudding peter all i gotta do is look at the numbers pre-rooney rule post-rooney rule whether it's hiring of minority coaches retention of minority coaches and the one thing that the discovery process will get to that may have the nfl more concerned than anything else who gets paid how much they get paid how they get paid because you and i and I assume you've heard this too, have heard for years that coaches have their official salary and some coaches have their unofficial extra that gets thrown on top of it. When all of that comes to light, when all of those numbers are out there, and we may never see them, they may never hit the open public forum, but that's something the NFL is going to be very nervous about all of that coming to light because that could result in a collusion lawsuit eventually against the NFL for the 
the payroll practices of all coaches for the last 50 years. Yeah, Mike, I think I found myself thinking about not only the, the sort of undermined issues here, and when I say undermine this, it, it, you know, obviously it's go, we're going to have to find out what of what Brian Flores says is true. Uh, and that will come out in time. But I also found myself thinking back over the 38 years I've covered the NFL. And I found myself wondering, when has there ever been a charge by someone who is or has been employed within the league uh, against the league and its coaches, or I'm sorry, its owners and the league itself and policies uh, that the league has adopted. And I have to tell you, I don't think there ever has been a case like this. The only thing that comes to mind that's even close is Al Davis versus the league. And that obviously was several times very explosive with Davis fighting uh, the league rigorously uh, for much of his ownership of the Raiders. The reason why this is different, this is not just Al Davis basically going up against the hierarchy of the NFL and Commissioner Pete Rozelle. This is Brian Flores going up against individual coaches, owners, and policies that the league has adopted, and basically calling out the NFL to say that the rules uh, for uh, equal racial policies in the league are a sham. And he said it very clearly. He accused the NFL and the owners uh, of acting in a totally irresponsible way when it comes to trying to level the playing field for black coaches. And Mike, the one other thing I found myself thinking about, a couple of weeks ago I had Troy Vincent, uh, the NFL uh, uh, executive who basically is in charge of making sure that the Rooney Rule is enforced correctly and that black coaches throughout the league and minority coaches throughout the league uh, get a fair chance. And, you know, Troy Vincent got very emotional in this phone conversation with me. And he's invested so much time and energy in this. And you could hear it in Troy Vincent's voice. I am not an owner. All I can do is present qualified quality candidates to owners and hope that they make a decision that is going to begin to level the playing field that as of now has one black head coach among 27 with 70 to 75% of the players black. And so Mike, this is, this is a, you can't under understate how much of a bombshell this is. And so to me, now, I, I just think this is a seminal day in league history. People have asked me repeatedly, because I handled cases like this during my years of practicing law, 18 years in all, for a big chunk of it. I defended cases like this. I prosecuted cases like this. And people have asked, how will Brian Flores prove his case? Well, the best way always to prove a case like this, because 
you're rarely going to get a smoking gun. You're rarely going to get a, a Jack Nicholson in a few good men moment where someone cracks on the witness stand. You're rarely going to get that. You're, you're, you're rarely going to have direct evidence of discrimination. Anytime you can use the words of the party that you're suing, the company, words from key executives against it, that makes it a hell of a lot easier to prove your case. And you mentioned Troy Vincent. There's a quote, paragraph seven of the complaint filed by Brian Flores. Troy Vincent quoted as saying, there's a double standard, and we've seen that. It's part of the larger challenges we have. When you look over time, it's over-indexing for men of Keller. These men have been fired after a winning season. How do you explain that? There is a double standard. This is Troy Vincent, executive VP of football operations, who has been in that job for at least seven years, maybe 10 years now. Time flies when we're having fun or otherwise. I don't think that is something we should shy away from, Vincent said. That is all part of some of the things we need to fix in the system. We want to hold everyone to why does one, let's say, get the benefit of the doubt to be able to build or take bumps and bruises in the process of getting a franchise turned around when others are not afforded that latitude. And Peter, it reminded me of some quotes from Troy Vincent to you from two years ago, which I think are even more damning, which undoubtedly will be used by Brian Flores' lawyers in this litigation. He told you in 2020, the facts are we have a broken system. Do I take it personal? Yes, I do. It's my responsibility as an athlete, as a man of color, as someone who bleeds the National Football League, bleeds football. It's part of our responsibility to continue what we believe is right for our game. Sitting in these meetings, listening, hearing people give different excuses like this is not the right platform or Troy, commissioner, I hear what you're trying to do. Not sure this is the right vehicle, but we understand. Those are the same words that they told people in my community in the 50s, the 40s, about integration of school system, housing, but not giving us any solutions. That's powerful. And that's something that will be used as a cudgel, rightfully so, against the NFL at every step of this process because it's the closest thing you're ever going to come to proving that there's bias. So you take that on one hand. And on the other hand, you take the hiring practices. And what I would tell a jury, because we're always looking when it's time to go speak to the jury and explain to the jury in real terms what's going on. I would say to the jury, you take a coin and you flip it 500 times. And if it comes up heads 490 times, there's something wrong with your coin. And the evidence backs that up. Yeah. They're going to have a hell of a time and with Mike. this. They're, they're going to get caught up in Brian Flores, and they're going to lose sight of the bigger picture. The bigger picture has been hiding in plain sight for years. That's the biggest thing that Brian Flores has going for him. Mike, you know, at the core of this, and, you know, I, so many thoughts ran through my mind when I was reading this uh, last night. But at the core of this also is that I believe that you have Troy Vincent on the one hand, who has been a very loyal league employee. And you, you have coaches calling him, frustrated black coaches calling him uh, and, and texting him. And, and almost, you know, I don't want to say begging him to do something, but in essence, please do something about this. And many of them, I know one, there's one, current highly thought of assistant coach in the NFL uh, who told someone who told me this that I've given up. 
I, I, I'm not even trying anymore. If somebody calls me, I'll be happy to talk to them, but I'm not putting out, I'm not, you know, strengthening my resume. I'm not, I'm not politicking for this. I've told my agent to shut up, you know, and, you know, because it's over. He said it's over. And look, I think right now one of the really, really interesting things is going forward with this is there are five jobs left in the NFL. And if we are to, uh, you know, consider exactly where everything is right now, it, it looks at least like Jim Harbaugh is the favorite in Minnesota. And if that's the case, then there will be, if he gets that job, then there will be four left. I think when you say the proof is in the pudding, we're watching it right before our very eyes. And it doesn't matter how many uh, African-American coaches, minority coaches are interviewed. If none of them ever get the job, then Brian Flory's case, in my opinion, is strengthened. And see, I think at this point, as it relates to his lawsuit, I don't think it matters. I think from the standpoint of the court of public opinion, if the NFL, from a PR standpoint, wants to try to nudge some of these teams or these teams decide on their own, we need to hire the black candidates so it looks better in response to Brian Flores' lawsuit. That's a different issue. But I, I, I think that, that, that you know, everything got, got, got sealed and, and frozen in cement when the lawsuit was filed, and it wouldn't be all that hard for Brian Flores' lawyers to paint anything that happens in the balance of this cycle as a reaction to the lawsuit, as an effort to do the cleanup on aisle five after these allegations are made. And, and I, I thought last night, you know, from a strategic standpoint, it may have been better for Brian Flores to wait until this cycle was over. He's not facing any statute limitations. It, this is all fresh. He's got plenty of time. Let's wait and see what happens with these next five jobs. In a roundabout way, he may have been doing some of the other coaches a favor because to the extent that there is a reaction from a PR standpoint that results in one or two or three black coaches getting these jobs, the fact that he filed his lawsuit may have been a factor, a big factor in nudging teams in that direction. I mean, I hope it is. I'd love to see Patrick Graham get an opportunity. And, Mike, you know, one of the things about, about the NFL coach hiring process, even though, and good for the NFL, it's been more deliberate this year. Uh, you know, people have taken their time. You know, I've given the stats on this show uh, a couple of times about uh, how basically teams waited longer than they ever have after the end of the regular season to begin the hiring process. But I also think that the, the one other flaw in the hiring process is always being concerned with winning the press conference, you know, and, and, and maybe thinking that, and, and I'm just, I'm going to give this as an example, not that it, it was a flawed process, I don't know what the process was. I just know what has been released by the team and the coaches involved. And now we'll see because Brian uh, Flores has implied uh, that the fix was in on this. But the New York Giants process resulted in Brian Dable getting a head coaching job. And look, again, I do not mean this with any criticism uh, toward Dable. 
But the fact is that NFL teams, time after time, year after year, have the sa- do the same thing. They hire coordinators from teams that have just had a great year. Is that the only place <clears throat> that coaches are good? Is that the only pool that, that we're considering? Personally, I was happiest of all the coaches in this process. I was happiest to hear that Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator of the Giants, who is black, had a nine-hour session this week in the offices of the Minnesota Vikings, his second interview with the Vikings. He met everybody in the organization. Mike, they did a mock press conference with, with Patrick Graham, you know, asking him everything. What's wrong with this team? What's wrong with... So they obviously vetted Patrick Graham so well. And, and the only reason I say this is that Patrick Graham is a coach on a team that has been awful for several years. Obviously, the Giants last won a playoff game 10 years ago this week. And so, you know, the Giants have totally been in a hole. And yet the defensive coordinator for that team, perhaps because the team originally, the Vikings were originally looking to satisfy the Rooney rule. I don't know why he was offered a chance in the interview. But the Vikings obviously saw some things, seemingly anyway, I should say not obviously, seemingly, seemingly saw some things they liked. And Patrick Graham, who is black, basically goes in there and apparently wows everybody. And everybody looks around and say, boy, how about this Patrick Graham? But it just goes to show that, to me, should have a totally, totally open process and not just think, hey, let's talk to the coaches of the teams that were really good this year. it's, It's always been that way. And I always wonder why. It's just, it's, I... I shouldn't wonder why, because teams want to win the press conference uh, a day or two or three after they make the hire. Well, if they really wanted to win the press conference, this gets back to something we've been saying the last two days. They wouldn't have them show up in business suits for the press conference. They'd let them wear what they wear on the sidelines and be comfortable and speak the way that they ordinarily will during the press conferences that we see during the season. Peter, the cynical view of this year's hiring process is that in the absence of a superstar for which there was a land rush by multiple teams to hire, that what teams decided to do was deliberately go slowly but ultimately hire whoever they want to hire anyway and not not give the, the black candidates any greater consideration than they otherwise would in the name of having greater representation among the broader coaching pool of black coaches and uh you know th- there is a greater sensitivity now to taking your time but this is the disconnect the nfl has faced for 20 years since the rooney rule was put in place you can't force these teams to hire black coaches you can just compel them to not rush in and hire the guy that they want to hire and before this process started it was estimated to me that 70 to 80 percent of these jobs when they're open the owner knows who's going to be hired this year. I feel like none of the owners had a predetermination as to who they wanted. So that's progress. But at the end of the day, and to get back to what Troy Vincent told you, they can only do so much. At the end of the day, the owners of these teams, the oligarchs, the monarchs who own these teams, and this is one of the most fascinating dynamics of 
of the NFL for me. Billion-dollar football operations run by families who pass the equity from generation to generation, sibling to sibling, really rich, really powerful people who aren't used to being told what to do and what not to do and do what they want to do whenever they want and however they want. And they're all white, mostly white, and they're more comfortable with people who look like them. That's been the big argument for all these years. It's one of, one of the reasons why there need to be black owners in the NFL. The problem is these values of franchises are skyrocketing. It's harder for anyone to come up with the money to buy one of these teams. Maybe it'll happen in Denver. Maybe it won't. But um, you've got people calling the shots who don't like to be told no and are willing to thumb their nose at what may be a protracted and troubling and expensive legal process because at the end of the day, I'm going to do what I want to do. That, that's, that's the factor that has created and, and allowed this mess to continue. And, and, you know, Mike, I think the other part of this whole equation that, uh, that really needs to see the light of day is how many qualified black candidates over the last X number of years, uh, you know, are presented and do interviews for these jobs. And there's never any real explanation about why they didn't get the job. You know, there's never any real explanation about why Jim Caldwell is fired after his uh, after his last year in Detroit. You know, for having uh, how can you have a winning record with the Detroit Lions? I, I, I mean, that's it's almost unheard of. Jim Caldwell did. Uh, and there are so many candidates who right now, the frustration uh, seeping out of them, crying uh, coaches. And, you know, and these, these coaches who reach out to Troy Vincent and who basically just want him to do something, anything, I think all of those coaches have to be cheering from the sidelines today. And I'm sure that all of the coaches who read this lawsuit, all of the black coaches who read this lawsuit are basically, you go, Flores, because they've been waiting for this moment for, as Flores has accused the NFL, for the hands caught in the cookie jar. And we'll see if these charges can be proven in a court of law. But Brian Flores has a lot of people cheering for him, rooting for him right now. Well, and, you know, Peter, they can do more than root. Do we have the statement from Brian Flores that was issued yesterday? I think I'm pulling it up here on my... Okay, let's uh, take a look at what he said, and here it is. In making the decision to file the class action complaint today, I understand that I may be risking coaching the game that I love and that has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. Others will join me. Peter, there's an opportunity for coaches out there to do more than cheer for Brian Flores. There is strength in numbers. 
Yeah. Well, well, hey, you can't blackball every black coach. If every black coach yeah. who's been overlooked decides to join in this litigation, put their name on the style of the case. And I understand it's a lot to ask for. And I understand that that's an individual decision that, that every coach is going to have to make. But if all of a sudden it becomes Brian Flores plus Eric Bieniemy, plus Jim Caldwell, plus Raheem Morris, plus Patrick Graham if he doesn't get one of these jobs, there's a certain point where the snowball becomes so big that the NFL just has to get out of the way. And, and when I saw that, that language from Brian Flores the first time, I thought, you know, he's, he's, he's not just hoping for cheerleaders. He's hoping for partners in this, and we'll see if he gets any. I think you're absolutely right, Mike. Uh, you know, they can't blackball every black coach. And, and I do think that there are probably quite a few black coaches this morning who are thinking, you know, what should I say? What should I do? Because if you're, for instance, a bright, young, rising black coach in the business, let's take Aaron Glenn, the defensive coordinator of the Detroit Lions, who, uh, you know, is, is very widely respected. He's a Parcells acolyte. Uh, and he is a guy, he's going to get interviewed in New Orleans if he hasn't already been, been interviewed. I do think that if one of these coaches basically comes out and says that about Brian Flores, to me, it will not only buttress, strengthen Brian Flores' case, but it will just basically say, we're mad as hell, we're not going to take it anymore, and you go Flores. The, uh, the other thing that I need to mention that will hover over the early stages of this case, it's one of the defenses that the NFL has already raised in the lawsuit that was filed in November by John Gruden, and that is the notion that the contract signed by Brian Flores with the Dolphins in early 2019 contains standard language compelling him to bring any and all claims that he may have against the Dolphins or the National Football League or anyone else falling under big shield to arbitration. That is the move, and this has become very popular over the last 20 years. Big companies want, for a variety of reasons, to force cases into arbitration. When you go to arbitration, you don't have to deal with a jury that may react, you know, like normal human beings would to evidence that makes people say, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they said that. They want it to come down to one lawyer or sometimes you've got more than one lawyer that that resolves these cases in arbitration. It's far more objective and dispassionate. You don't have to worry about a runaway arbitration outcome. They like it for that reason. They also like it because, because what occurs is it all happens in private. You don't have uh, an open court session at the end of the day. And look, the, the lawyers who represent organizations like the NFL will insist on protective orders and other documentation and commitments that will keep information quiet and private and secret. It's a lot easier to pull that off in arbitration. And in arbitration, if you ultimately have a hearing, it doesn't happen in an open courtroom where people can go in and sit and watch and listen and report on what occurs. So fight number one will be 
the motion to compel arbitration, which undoubtedly is coming from Brian Flores. And we'll see how that that plays out for him and for the league. And from from our perspective, let me me ask you this. Go ahead. Let me ask you this as somebody who is very, very familiar with this arena. Who, which side do you think would ultimately benefit from arbitration? It's always the company. It's always the business. That's, that's why it's in the contract. If, if the NFL didn't benefit from arbitration, there would not be in every head coaching contract, in every GM contract, in every assistant coach contract and arbitration clause and all of those arbitration clauses <laughs> and this is where it becomes even nuttier they specify that the arbitrator won't be someone on the outside it will be the commissioner or his designee and maybe this case maybe the pushback against the the effort to force the Brian Flores litigation into arbitration will include an attack on the inherent conflict of interest that the commissioner has in a situation like this. But it's, it's always the company. I fought this when I was practicing law the final 10 years that I did it, and I was exclusively representing individuals. The company always wants to find a way to force it into arbitration because David has a much better chance at beating Goliath when a jury of David's is deciding the case. And Goliath wants nothing more than to avoid a jury full of Davids. Well, you think then there is practically zero chance that Flores would agree to have this case uh, sent to arbitration? No, he'll fight it. He'll fight it tooth and nail. He'll absolutely fight it. Now, Now, if the NFL were to offer, and I still think he would fight it, if they were to say, well, we will... We'll use an outside arbitrator, somebody who's truly independent, who has no ties to the NFL, who has no tentacles back to the NFL. That would be a potential compromise. But I think Flores should stand firm and insist on on a process that will result in as much light as possible shining on this. And that's what I was starting to say earlier. From our perspective, sorry, NFL, I want this all in court. I want this all to play out. I want the dirty laundry hanging from the line because it's not just the potential for a massive verdict that is going to get the NFL to finally change. It is the fact that when you pull this crap, it's going to be exposed. You can't just hide it in an arbitration setting where no one's going to have access. That's what happened with Colin Kaepernick. His case went to arbitration. What did we ever see from the deposition transcripts there? Because part of the deal was when they paid him roughly $10 million, and that's become the accepted figure, everything got wiped away. Everything got expunged. Everything is gone. That was one of the requirements of the St. Louis settlement, $790 million. In exchange, everything, everything gets disintegrated. Everything gets burned. These things never come to light. That's why they settled with concussion cases. The value to the NFL early on? never having to testify in open court what was known and when they knew it about the long-term risks of head trauma. So the process gets used to, to conceal the truth, and uh, we want the truth to come out. That's what we do, Peter. We try to pursue the truth. 
And the only way the truth is going to come out for Brian Flores and the case that he's trying to make is if it happens in an open courtroom. And whether he wins or whether he loses, I hope he gets his day in court, not in the court of Roger Goodell, but in the court of the Southern District of New York, federal court, open access. We all get to sit there if we want, space permitting, and hear exactly what the evidence is. I I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. To me, uh, another settlement in this case without the facts ever being heard. Uh, You know, can you imagine if the if the accusations he has made in this lawsuit i think particularly against stephen ross and the miami dolphins just imagine if they're left hanging out there with ross and the dolphins adamantly denying them uh i mean this has to be answered we need to know the truth of this you know a miami dolphins fan has to know if his owner if the if they're if the owner of the team that so many people love did what Flores has accused him of doing, and if so, he can't be an owner in the NFL anymore. That will be the focus of our conversation regarding the Brian Flores lawsuit. When we return, we'll be back with more PFT Live on this historic day in the NFL. Right after this. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The landmark lawsuit filed by Brian Flores against the NFL and several teams includes an allegation that Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, was so intent on getting the first overall pick in 2020 that he allegedly offered Brian Flores $100,000 for each game the team lost in 2019. And there's already talk in league circles, and Peter, I'm sure you've heard it as well, and you alluded to the outcome in the last segment. If this is true, Stephen Ross has to go. In an age of legalized gambling, even without legalized gambling, the NFL was always founded on the notion that everyone tries to win every single game. It's why the NFL always looks the other way on any talk of tanking late in the season. Once a team's cause is lost, you're not going to make it to the playoffs. Who cares if you're 5-12 and or 4-13 and or 3-14? and You're not in the playoffs. Every game you win knocks you farther down the stack in the draft order. But what the Dolphins intended to do, by all appearances and indications, was to treat all of 2019 like an effort to get in position to get the first pick in 2020. Sometimes you got to take your lumps, is what Stephen Ross was once heard saying that same year by, oh, I don't know, me. And it was in the context of losing short-term to win long term and if it had happened he would have had Joe Burrow I think one of the reasons Brian Flores got fired I I speculated on this and the lawsuit supports it the relationship went off the rails when Brian Flores said I'm not going along with a full season tank and when it becomes obvious that Joe Burrow is one of the great not just young quarterbacks but great quarterbacks period in the NFL that's got to piss off a guy as we said earlier who is used to getting what he wants and doesn't want anyone telling him no. Stephen Ross in 2019 wanted the team he owns 
to suck badly enough that he could have the first pick in the draft and it would have been Joe Burrow. And he's pissed off it didn't happen. Now, it's stunning to think along the way he offered $100,000 per loss to Brian Flores. And again, it's an accusation. But it's just one of those, it's like, man, it's so nutty. It gives it credibility. Like, if, if, if Brian Flores is committed to lying, there are far easier lies to tell than $100,000 per loss was offered to me by the owner of the team. So, uh, Peter, bottom line. Now, will the NFL investigate this, or will they just rally around Stephen Ross? That's the threshold question. Will they treat Ross the way they would treat a player who is accused of this kind of an affront to the integrity of the game? I don't think they will. I mean, look at their statement two hours after the suit comes out. It's, oh, we already know this is without merit. They're going to stand behind their guy. But there's no question in my mind. I don't think, you know, I don't think we in the media, I don't think uh, the, the fans of the Miami Dolphins, you know, I, you know, I would hope that the fans of the Miami Dolphins and the media you know, that that cover the NFL basically would treat this the way that the media treated and has treated uh, the Washington football team case. And that we have seen this, Mike, over and over again. The NFL in the Washington football team case has basically said, nothing to see here, drop this story. And the people who have been the aggrieved parties in that story basically have said, there is something to see here, and we want you to see it. And it's the same thing in the Miami story. We need to see and we need to hear what the real truth is and whether Stephen Ross did this. Now, Mike, it's interesting. I don't know when... I, I really wish the one thing that was missing in this suit is when Brian Flores really was, was asked specifically. I wish we had a date be, that, you know, he claims that Stephen Ross said, I'll give you $100,000, you know, for, for each loss. Because, you know, at the, as this season wound down and as it became very apparent that especially after Joe Burrow and LSU beat Alabama the way that they did. It became apparent that Joe Burrow was going to be a little bit higher in the pecking order than Tuatonga Valoa and Justin Herbert. Right or wrong. But that's what happened as November became December. Because listen, as November ended in 2019, the Cincinnati Bengals were 0-11 and the Miami Dolphins were 2-9. and and what happened after that is that the Miami Dolphins in the month of December, or in the last five weeks of the season, ended the season with a 3-2 and two record. And the Bengals won two games, but still, you know, the Bengals secured the right for the top pick in this draft. And, you know, my feeling is by going 3-2 and two in that month, Brian Flores thought, thought that he was doing the best thing for his team, his locker room, his franchise. And if it comes out that the owner wanted him to do something different than that, well, so be it. And Mike, I just want to say one other thing about this. It's a pragmatic thing. There's been a lot of discussion now about what the Bengals, you know, 
could somebody have really wrestled the number one pick from the Cincinnati Bengals that year? And, you know, we don't, we don't know. You couldn't have known in December of that year exactly what would have happened. But the ironic part of this, I've known Mike Brown for 38 years. And I can tell you without any, uh, without any doubt in my mind that if he decided that he was going to pick, pick a name, didn't matter, as the number one pick in the draft, and it just so happened that Joe Burrow was that guy, absolutely unequivocally, you were not going to change his mind. But you couldn't know that in December. What you could know is that the Bengals, with the first pick in the draft, entering the month of December, two games behind the Bengals, it's going to be very hard to make up that thing unless you so purposely try to lose. And it turned out the Bengals won two games that month. I don't know who would have won the tiebreaker for the draft. But the point is that Brian Flores owes it to his team. He owes it to fair play to win as many games as he can. And kudos to him uh, for getting a bad team to go 3-2 and two in the month of December that year. And I actually think that Stephen Ross entered that season with the intent of a full campaign tank. Not... Once we're out of it, let's go ahead and win by losing. Let's go ahead and enhance our draft status by mailing it in. We're already done. And I've been a proponent for years, and Peter, the NFL has created the system that incentivizes it. Once you know you're not making it to the playoffs, who cares what your record is? Go ahead and get the best possible draft position, round one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that you can. The system is set up to incentivize that. But I think Ross entered the year. And I remember how they could be 59-10 to 10 week one by the Ravens. There was acrimony. There was dysfunction. Micah Fitzpatrick got traded. And I think at some point fairly early in the season, Brian Flores said, I'm not playing along with this. I have to try to build something here. I am not going to have an entirely wasted season just because Stephen Ross wants Tua Tagovailoa and pivoted Joe Burrow after Tua broke his hip and Burrow became Joe Burrow. Before he was Joe Burrow, we didn't know who the hell he was. And Peter, I'm trying to spin this forward. You know, there's a great comment that's been made by M. Bruce Esquire on Twitter. Side issue, but potentially huge. How does the new NFL with sportbook relationships, how does that look after allegations coaches being asked to throw games? The integrity of the games are paramount for a functional sports betting industry. I think the NFL has to eliminate all potential temptation. What it does now is ignore it. It just ignores it. You have to eliminate any temptation to deliberately lose games once you are eliminated or, as a practical matter, done. And the only way to eliminate the temptation, and bear with me here, I'm going somewhere with this. It sounds kooky on the surface. The only way to do it is to have a straight lottery for all the teams that don't make it to the playoffs. The 18 teams that don't make it, with no extra balls for being the worst. This is a point where they just have to say, we're going to have a line. The 14 teams, we, we assume that no one is going to not try to make the playoffs in an effort to get you know, a crack at, at a high draft pick. But anyone who doesn't make the playoffs, all 18 teams go into the same hopper, one ball each, and that's how we're going to determine the draft order from 1 to 18. That is the only way to minimize the temptation that has been there for years to lose games 
once you know you're out of it, or to enter a season, as Stephen Ross did in 2019, I believe, intending to lose as much as he could. Because in, in the, the scenario I'm suggesting, even if you intentionally lose all your games, you still are in the hopper with the other 17 non-playoff teams to determine how those first 18 picks go. That's the only way to fix this. That's it. Any other system is going to have a temptation to enhance your position by losing games. I mean, I don't like it, Mike. I, I, don't, I don't hate the concept of trying to eliminate any chance for tanking. I, I, I think that's admirable. But I think it's also pretty uh, – I mean, I, I don't want to say silly. That's the wrong word. I think it's wrong to think that you'd be fixing a problem by, let's say for the, just the sake of argument – in a, in a year in which a team wins one game, uh, a team goes one in 16, they would be in the same boat and have the same chance of getting the top draft choice as a team that goes nine and eight. You know, that goes against the NFL's stated goal of trying to give everybody a chance every year. What would have happened in the year, for instance, that, you know, the Bengals got the top draft pick and 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 took Joe Burrow if let's say somehow some way the 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 17th team normally in the draft lottery uh it was awarded the first pick in the draft and the Bengals were awarded the 15th it just there's something about that and I understand wanting to eliminate tanking but I think you're going so far the other way on that one well but Peter but Peter the problem is the NFL is married to this concept that it's good for the game to let the dysfunctional teams have dibs on the best players coming out of college and potentially ruin those players, right? The idea is it's all going to work out and we're going to balance it out and we're, we're going to have, you know, Pete Rozelle's dream of everybody being 8-9 and nine or 9-8 nine and eight and all playoff spots undecided until the final weekend of the season. And, and look, that, that's fine, but... My point is this. If the NFL finds itself with a major problem over this Stephen Ross accusation, they are going to have to take a long look at whether it's worth it to them to have hiding in plain sight incentives to lose games once you know you're not making it to the playoffs. Or if you have a team that you don't think is going to be very good, entering the season with the idea, we're just going to go ahead and take our lumps and try to get the first pick in next year's draft. And the system that currently is in place encourages that. So if they ever become convinced that they have to remove that incentive, this example is the kind of thing that they need to consider. And frankly, here's another one. And if you thought the last one was silly, where do you get a load of this one? Why not? Why do we even reward, I almost said a word I shouldn't, crappy play? Why do we do that? Why do we incentivize it? Why do we say... Hey, you are the worst team in the NFL. Congratulations. You have secured dibs on the best player coming out of college this year. Now go screw up his career too. Why, why, isn't, why isn't it one of the spoils of victory? I just won the Super Bowl. You know what? I win the Super Bowl. I get the first pick in the draft. And it goes in that order <laughs> instead of the other way. That would eliminate all incentive to tank if that was the rule. You can't say there'd be any incentive to tank. I mean... I guess I would just respond by asking if you were trying to make up 
a a perfect scenario for forming a new league and for trying to make this league. Oh, as I know what I'd do. I know what I'd do. Possible. <laughs> I I Go ahead. What would you do? <laughs> I'd get rid of the draft. I'd get rid of the draft. Yeah. The draft is a sham. The draft is a farce. These guys should be free agents. They should get to pick their NFL programs the way that they pick their colleges. It, was in, it would encourage excellence and eliminate, or at least create an incentive to eliminate dysfunction because you no longer have to sit back and be a crap team and you have the first pick fall into your laps. You've got to go work for them. People are like, well, the Cowboys would, would, would sign everyone. No, there'd still be a salary cap and there'd be a hard rookie salary cap. And you'd have to pick and choose who you actually sign and how much you pay them. And what quarterback's going to go to the Chiefs if he's good? They got Patrick Mahomes. It's all going to work out. You're going to go to places where you think you can play. But if you want to make it, if you want to, if you want to make it non-dysfunctional, just get rid of the draft altogether. They never will. They never will. That's the bet. That's a much better idea than either of the previous two. Then get rid of the draft. Not necessarily. Get rid of the draft. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Uh, But I mean, the draft has become right now anyway, and the reason why the NFL would fight that tooth and nail, obviously is that the the draft has become like the fourth largest sport in America. The NFL draft, probably in the United States, is more popular than the NHL. I mean, think about that. The draft lasts for three days, but it, in essence, lasts the whole year. It, it, you know, it really does. It's insane how much the draft is covered. And so, to me, I, I just, I look at this and... And the NFL would fight that not because they're trying to make everybody equal. The NFL would fight that because it's been it's become a gigantic part of the NFL calendar, a gigantic money maker with cities falling all over themselves to host the draft. And and you know who who knows how much money changes hands, but this is this is something that. For for reasons having nothing to do with competitive balance, for reasons only because it has become as much a part of the NFL calendar as opening day is, uh, that the NFL would fight that to the death. It's even bigger than opening day. It is the ultimate offseason tentpole, and I agree with you. They're not getting rid of the draft. I don't like the draft. I think it's anti-American. We can have that conversation another day, and there are plenty of people who disagree with me, and I don't care. I have managed to bring a lot of people around to my way of thinking that players should be able to pick where they start their career, not the other way around. But you're right. It's not going anywhere. But if they're going to take this seriously, if they're forced to take it seriously, because, Peter, they're not going to take it seriously. They're not going to investigate Stephen Ross. They're not going to to throw him out of club oligarch the way that Jerry Richardson was summarily I be so sure. ushered out. Uh, well, I, then if they do, if they do acknowledge this, they have to prevent it from happening again in the future. And you have to, you have to find a middle ground. At a minimum, you have to reduce the incentive to tank or you have to eliminate it. And the, the easiest way to eliminate would be to get rid of the draft. We agree on that. But, but they have to look for a hybrid where when you enter the season, you know there's no extra benefit to being as bad as you can be. Or when you are eliminated from playoff consideration, you know that there's no reason to try to lose games. The Buccaneers did it the last game of 2014. We've talked about this before. They pulled half their starters down or up, up double digits against the Saints, lost that game, and secured the rights to Jameis Winston now. 
they got their punishment. But but still, they also got the first pick in the draft when they wanted the first pick in the draft. So it's happened. It's out there. And this is an extreme example of what an owner will try to do to get it. The lawsuit filed by Brian Flores also alleges that Ross attempted to get Flores to violate the tampering rules by meeting with a prominent quarterback. In early 2020, Joe Shad of the Palm Beach Post has since reported that it was Tom Brady. And, of course, it was Tom Brady. You know, the Dolphins were the team the Patriots feared the most when Brady was approaching free agency. And it was Ross who stood up Super Bowl week two years ago and said, why would we want Tom Brady? Well, little did we know, if Flores' allegations are accurate, that Ross had already tried to get Tom Brady, but his coach wasn't interested in trying to lure Tom Brady to Miami. Now, look, this is a lesser concern for me than the other one because everybody does this stuff. I mean, Bruce Arians was flat out stomping on the tampering rules in the month of February 2020. And I think that that the whole Tom Brady thing was set up and packaged and bought and paid for before free agency began that year. But uh, it's kind of an interesting little nugget on how clumsily some of these owners will behave in an effort to ignore the rules that, that are supposedly in place to get them to not do these things. You know, the other part of this that, it, you know, the, that, that aspect of it is, to me, it's so, uh, it's so I, I don't even want to use the word transparent, but it, it's so obvious that Stephen Ross, you know, his whole bent on, you know, since he's become owner, we got to find this generation's Dan Marino. We have to do this. You hear it from everybody who's worked for that team who is no longer working for that team. He was myopic about getting the long-term quarterback. And they thought maybe they had it in Ryan Tannehill for a while, but obviously that wasn't the case. So they get rid of Tannehill. And they thought certainly they were going to have it, you know, in you know, after the 2019 season in the 2020 draft. And then obviously they can't get Joe Burrow, who they really, really wanted. And then they hoped that Tua was the, the, the guy. And clearly Tua wasn't the guy. And it's amazing to me, but if Ross, if, if this is absolutely true, and, and if Ross did this, then he was deciding after kind of an injury-plagued, weird year uh, that he wanted this guy. He wanted Tom Brady over kind of the lottery pick in the draft because they were probably going to get the second-best quarterback in a quarterback-rich draft. So the whole thing is weird and so impetuous, and it just says to me that, you know, Stephen Ross always got his way, if, it, again, if it's true, that Stephen Ross always got his way in business and he was going to do whatever it took to get the quarterback that could solve all the problems for his team. And that obsession has been there, and you're right. It's gone from one quarterback to the next. It's bounced around. And I think the fact that Joe Burrow, his most recent – well, other than Deshaun Watson. But before Deshaun Watson, Joe Burrow was the most recent object of Ross's obsession. Look at what Burrow has become. And I think that that helped contribute to what was the surprising firing of Brian Flores and the far more surprising lawsuit that has been filed by him. So we'll we'll see – how aggressively the NFL investigates Ross. Let me tell you this story real quickly, because this has been part of my experience as well. When you have a lawsuit against the company or a worker at a, at a retail establishment, or whatever the case may be, 
there's usually a person, a manager. There's somebody who was the person who said and did things that he or she shouldn't have said or done. That person gets sued individually quite often. And the company has a choice to make early on. Do we rally around the person who is accused of doing these things, or do we do our own investigation into whether or not the person did these things, knowing that if they did, we have a huge potential liability? And what may happen is, Peter, they may throw their arms around Stephen Ross until the day after this case is over. And then that's when Ross gets kicked out of the club, Uh, but not before, because if they kick him out before and the case is still going, that could be a problem. Then you get somebody who is no longer motivated to say all the right things and play the game. He no longer has skin in the game if he's kicked out of the NFL. So that's another reason for the NFL to – to, to say that all these things that Brian Flores is currently claiming about Stephen Ross are not truthful, not accurate, and are flat-out lies. So we'll see how the NFL handles it. When we return, there's a wild twist in this story that came from the greatest coach of all time in the National Football League, Bill Belichick's text messages, and the unfortunate coincidence of two coaching candidates with the first name of Brian. We'll be back with more PFT Live right after this. Brian Flores is 40 years old, and as he said in that statement, when you make, when you call out injustice, when you call out bias, and people don't want to be called out, they don't want to be made uncomfortable, it's a sacrifice, and it probably will cost you a head coaching opportunity. But it needed to be done, and he did it. I, I just feel, I feel I'm proud of Brian Flores for doing this, but I'm sick that it has come to this. That was Michael Hawley yesterday on Brother from Another regarding the Flores case, which landed while they were on the air. It was a lot to process in real time, and it really is a landmark historic event for the National Football League, something I thought would never happen because you do have to be willing. Not that it's right, not that it's definite, but you have to be willing to put on the line your future coaching career. And this is a guy who is still not quite 40 years old, who has to assume maybe he'll get a college job at some point, but it's not like the, the racial biases are any different. Look at the history at the NCAA. In some respects, it's been worse than the NFL, but uh, he's going to have a hard time finding a job. And uh, hopefully somebody will do the right thing. And it, 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 it'd be great if the Saints would – would, who, who have been on the wrong end of some mistreatment from the league office over the past 10 years. It would be great if Gail Benson would decide that, that she stands with Brian Flores. That would be something if that happened. I, I just I – don't, I don't think it will. Um, but uh, you have to go into this process if you're Brian Flores assuming that you're going to be frozen out just like Colin Kaepernick was for good. You know, I think that is how strongly Brian Flores believed in and believes in what he's doing, Mike. And I think the one thing about this case, the overarching case, is that if you if you talk to people who really know Brian Flores, they'll tell you, in essence, that behind his absolute total love of football is an extremely principled person. Uh, and I think regardless of what he was going to do, regardless of what you would want to believe about 
whether he did a good job in Miami or whether it was a house of cards or whatever you would feel about it. I think that it takes someone uh, with a tremendous amount to lose to, to do something like this to really try to promote real change in the National Football League. And so for that reason, and again, I am assuming that Brian Flores believes everything in this lawsuit and can stand behind it and can also offer proof that it happened. I'm assuming that. I don't know that. We'll see. Because there are two sides to every story. But in my opinion, when I just look at this, one of the first things that you think after reading this lawsuit is, Brian Flores is a young man. And he understands that he's putting his career on the line for many, in many ways, uh, for every other black coach out there to try to make sure that this doesn't happen to them as well. And the risk he's consciously taking almost gives his, his claims greater credibility. Why would you show yeah. up at the table knowing what the price of admission is unless you thought you had the goods? And one of the pieces of evidence he will utilize, and it appears in very jarring fashion at the very bottom of the formal style of the case, at the very top where it says Brian Flores versus etc., right below the line, there is the quote from Bill Belichick, including a word that we cannot use here. Sorry, I effed this up. I double-checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Brian Dayball. They are the Giants. And what happened was Bill Belichick accidentally texted congratulations to Brian Flores when he meant to text congratulations to another former assistant in New England, Brian Dayball. And really, it's as simple as autofill, Peter. We've all had, I know I've had an autofill failure. Uh, you start putting in the name, and it uh, doesn't necessarily finish the name that you wanted it to. And that may be what happened here, but it, it, was, it was kind of an Abbott and Costello routine, if you look at the text messages, where Brian Flores was confused at first that he's getting the Giants job, and it turns out that Brian Dayball was getting the Giants job, and Brian Flores was confused because he hadn't even interviewed for the Giants job yet, and that's what feeds into his theory and his allegation that the Giants already the knew what they were going to do, that the interview of Brian Flores was a sham, as Flores calls it. And here's a timeline that was established via his appearance on CBS Mornings. Art Stapleton and Newsday put this together. The text from Belichick came on a Monday. Brian Dayball interviewed with the Giants on a Tuesday. On Wednesday, Dayball, sufficiently upset by the situation, he contacted CBS for a sit-down interview. Thursday, he has his interview with the Giants. Friday, Leslie Frazier, the the defensive coordinator of the Bills, interviews with the Giants. Friday night, Brian Dayball gets the job. So, fascinating that Flores was already activating machinery to push back even before he interviewed Peter. And, you know, look, I think, Mike, that that timeline shows that Brian Flores basically knew that if these text messages were accurate, that and, and obviously he got them from Bill Belichick. So after he got these text messages, that to him, it, it, as I read the complaint, after he got these text messages, that was his final straw. 
that's when he knew he had to do something, that he couldn't sit quietly on the sidelines and he couldn't just think, well, hey, maybe I'll get the Houston job. You know, at that point, this all became bigger than me trying to get a head coaching job in the NFL because I'm sure that deep down Brian Flores is thinking, I don't want to play this game anymore. I don't want to be a pawn in this game anymore. I did the best that I could in Miami. The owner, in, and, and again, these are, these are clearly Brian Flurry's words. They are not mine. But the owner wanted me to throw games so that we could have a better draft position. You know, the owner and I did not see eye to eye at all. So he fired me. Do I want to go somewhere else and continue to play this game? Or do I want to expose at least with at least one franchise and maybe a lot more than one what's going on in the NFL, what really happens in the NFL. Um, and, and I think that's why it is laudable that he has basically taken himself out of this business and said, I would rather expose what is happening in this business than to uh, shut my mouth and to be a part of a business that I truly right now that many parts of it that I truly detest. And I can understand why he was upset when he found out that they had already decided on Brian Dayball without even talking to him. Look, the big risk that any team takes when hiring as a head coach someone who has been a coordinator and never a head coach is that the person will be able to do a fundamentally different job. And some people can and some people can't. When you have a candidate who has shown that he can do the job successfully and put together back-to-back winning seasons in Miami for the first time in a generation, you would think that would give him, at a minimum, equal footing, if not greater consideration, because you eliminate that risk that this person can't do the next higher job than the one that he currently has. So I could see why that would have been the last straw for Brian Flores and get him to decide to put these wheels in motion. I mean, it was obvious when I saw the lawsuit. This isn't something that got whipped up over the weekend. This is something that's been brewing. This is something that that he probably realized after his dealings with Stephen Ross that at some point his career was going to take this turn. And, uh, again, good for him for taking this risk and for doing the, the thing that, that uh, he thought he needed to do, not just for himself, but for all the other black coaches out there who have been unfairly overlooked in the past and who were in position to continue to be unfairly overlooked in the future, absent the kind of change that hopefully this lawsuit will spark. Whatever happens with the lawsuit, if it ends up in arbitration, we never hear from it again, if it gets settled, whatever, whatever. Hopefully the mere filing of it, Peter, will be the thing that prompts real change for the NFL going forward. You know, Mike, I also think the one other part of this that got a little bit lost is just the fact that Brian Flores has so many tentacles in this case. And when you can involve the greatest coach in the game, Bill Belichick, you then basically, and you obviously share the text messages from Belichick. To me... This case is so compelling because it has the gravitas that involves the greatest coach in the game, involves one of the 32 owners, and involves a systemic group 
uh, or, or a systemic set, uh, you know, basically a systemic ethos, I guess is the best way to put it, that basically says, you know, it is going to be very, very difficult for black coaches to get jobs against their white counterparts in the NFL as long as the current group of 32 owners in the NFL remains an all-white fraternity. Uh, and, and, and until that changes, and again, I don't know how it's going to change. I really don't. I don't know how many people in the world have $4 billion dollars uh, to even get involved, four billion spare dollars, I should say, to get involved to go out and buy franchises and to get them up and running. So to me, this is this is a gigantic issue, Mike. It's a gigantic issue, and for Brian Flores to have thrown all of this open, I, I mean, when I asked you before in the show, who does the uh, system of arbitration? Benefit. I mean, I knew you were going to say the NFL because obviously it does. And that's one of the reasons why I just simply hope that this is a case that is heard in the public square because we need to hear this. And, and let's just say that Flores is proven wrong. W- whatever it is, we just need to find out the truth because what has been, what is in his lawsuit is extremely ugly, and it's very hard for the NFL to just say nothing to see here while paying Brian Flores X number of millions to make this go away. I don't want that. I don't think anybody should want that. You said something there that that, that made a, a little flame flicker in my brain. And I know that the NFL is concerned about the ongoing increase in franchise values that it decreases the pool of people who have the ability to purchase a team and the model has been but for the green bay packers who issued stock back in the 20s because they were almost out of money and that was the thing they could come up with and the nfl let them do it the nfl would have never let them do it in in today's game no other team is allowed to do it at some point peter i think these teams need to be corporations i think at some point Not that corporations are free from this kind of behavior, but I think at some point a pivot away from one person who is the emperor of a billion-dollar football team toward a group that can potentially be more diverse, a diverse board of directors, chief executive, an executive staff, something that is decentralized. There are too many eggs in the one basket, and it, create, it, it, it results in, at the end of the day, no matter what the NFL does to try to get these teams to be fair, to be equitable, to have diverse hiring practices, it's the one guy who is never told no, who is never told what to do, who is never told to do anything other than he wants to do, being expected to do something other than what he wants to do. That doesn't work, especially in this setting. You know, Mike, you're absolutely right, which is why we need to see, we need to hear the truth. There cannot be a settlement on this. We need to hear exactly what happened with this. And, you know, could Bill Belichick have been, you know, have been exaggerating something in his text? Could he, you know, we just need to hear from everybody 
involved in this story. And then we need to allow uh, a jury of their peers to decide what's right and wrong. Uh, and that is my fervent hope. The one other thing, Mike, that, that I believe really, really has to happen is that Roger Goodell has to be held accountable for the league's reaction to this and the league's investigation into this because a credible member of the National Football League, now an ex-member in Brian Flores, has accused the man who hired him with basically asking him to essentially try to fix games. Brian Flores has thrown uh, a, a Molotov cocktail at the NFL. And for the NFL to insult uh, everybody who likes the NFL and everybody who loves the NFL, to, for, for, for the NFL to insult the fans who love this game by saying that this case is totally without merit is, is a disgrace. And Roger Goodell needs to be held to account for this, for how something like that could be said by this league, instead of saying that we believe we have done everything that we can to try to promote uh, racial equality among all areas of our league. But we are going to investigate the charges here, and we'll have no further comment while this investigation is taking place. I, I don't understand how you can respond to charges that Brian Flores made by saying there is nothing to see here. And, and, and that is an excellent point, and that continues to resonate. And uh, presumably some lawyer, maybe Jeff Pash, the general counsel, told PR this is how we're going to deal with it. Nobody took a step back and asked the tough question of should we really deal with it this way? Because what's wrong with saying these are serious charges and we plan to investigate them, but – but it's a clue as to where it's going to go. It's going to be fight, 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 fight. It's going to be do everything you can to make Brian Flores look bad. That thing that I always asked a potential client who was getting ready to sue a company, I knew what was going to happen. They were going to come after that person aggressively. Number one, what's the worst thing about yourself that could potentially come to light? And number two, are you comfortable with it coming to light? If the answer to number two is no, you shouldn't file this lawsuit because they're going to come after you with everything they have because they're going to make it about you, not about them. And I think that's what we'll see the NFL do. Let's take a break. When we return, we have an answer to a question that's been hovering for months. The Washington football team has a new name. We'll tell you what it is. Give you our thoughts, if you care, when PFT Live continues right after this. 